0: Now let's focus in on our visualization that we've been following for this lesson. This is our inner connectedness through the threads of light that are the background fabric for this entire creation. The intention of this visualization is to feel how we are part of this great woven tapestry and that the threads that make up our own nature extend out in all directions and unify us, that far from being separate individual entities, we are all interconnected in our core. The image begins with this beautiful, expansive woven web like the beautiful pattern of a spider's web, gossamer web, woven by a living creature. And the threads are threads of golden light. And feel that beneath our feet, stretching out in all directions, that we are perched on this beautiful web of light. We can see a piece of it underneath all of us, supporting all of us. But it goes out from this room in all directions, extending out to infinity, this gossamer web of woven light. And each one of us is living creatures like a tiny dewdrop. It's a little encapsulated, sparkling piece of infinite consciousness, individualized and yet not separate from the whole. Because here we sit on that gossamer web. And the light that is the web flows into us and is the substance of our little dew drop that we call ourselves. And when we look around us in the magic of visualization, we see how every living creature, every human being, every event, every country, every reality is little drops of dew on that huge gossamer web. Any one thread is connected with all the others. Feel our awareness expanding out through those pulsing rays of light of the gossamer web, vibrating that light pulsing within us, pulsing in all the other living beings, one power, one spirit, one consciousness. Seemingly separate, but inwardly unified. Feel the benign power behind the weaver of that web, the benign loving power of the infinite, creating, guiding, moving, uniting, and repeat after me I am, one with in I am one with everything in existence truth itself is mine and I am part of all truth I am one with everything in existence, I am one with everything in existence. truth itself is mine and I, am part of all truth. and I am part of all truth. I am one with everything in existence. I am one with everything in existence. Truth itself is mine. Itself is mine. And, I and I am part of all truth. That last line is about projecting our awareness out toward anything we want to understand. Anything that exists in creation or could be manifested in creation is not separate or distant from us. We don't have to acquire it, we just have to become aware of it. We can project our energy out from where we sit on this web and become united with any part of it. Oh, peace. Uh, Last week I invited you to ask questions and that basically was our whole class. Um, So I'm going to risk it again. (laughs) Does anyone have any questions to start our evening off with? Okay, you can change your mind after a few minutes. Um, I have uh, some things I've been learning this week which turn out to be quite relevant to both this whole course and to this class. Um, And it's really about that simple, you know, the fundamental thing that he says here. He talks about how he manifests, how he has a clear idea of what he wants, and he, he demands it, and then it comes to him. And he, and he gives us multiple examples. There's other principles in this lesson that I may go back and touch, but I want to just first deal with this. He gives us example after example. How he decided he was a Greek, and then he was able to understand Greek. He talks about how he wanted to understand astrology, and was able to understand astrology how he decides he wants to write music and was able to write music. These are three examples he gives. Maybe he has even others. He talks about uh, Ramnuja, who was a great mathematician and was so full of mathematics that people thought he couldn't be educated. He talks about Thomas Edison and his extraordinary ability to persevere and to have all his inventions. And, and then he tells us, you know, take whatever it is that you want to... Um, be inspired about, you know, project energy toward it. So, I've been hearing all this for many years, and I can do a little bit of it, but I've been... Let me just... I'll just tell you the story as it it has unfolded in my little life, because this is a very current tale. Um, A few months ago, when we were in Assisi, Italy, in June, Swami Kriyananda had the inspiration that he would like to essentially reform the sannyas order in India. Um, The Indian swamis wear orange robes in Autobiography of a Yogi. Yogananda talks about it because there's a chapter called I Become a Member of the Swami Order. And he talks about how, how some hundreds of years ago a man who's now known as Adi Shankaracharya, the first Shankaracharya, who was a great saint, organized or reorganized this ancient monastic order into a certain form with these different they're called piths, I think, which is different divisions all around India and all, a whole series of rules about how the swamis are supposed to behave. He put the orange robes on them. And this is what we've seen ever since. Swami means teacher, one who is master of himself. Swami Kriyananda is a member of that order. Yogananda is a member of that order. He was Swami Yogananda for many years until his guru gave him the higher title of Paramhansa. So you've probably read at least a little about it. It's now been many hundreds of years since Swami Shankar Ananda, Adi Shankar Ananda lived, Shankaracharya lived, and the tradition continues. But when you go to India, if you go to India, you see all sorts of people dressed in orange, and some of them are inspiring, some of them are not, and very, very few of the rules that Adi Shankaracharya set up—that um, you only stay in one place for three days that you walk, that you, I think you beg for your food, you don't handle money, you don't own property. Very few of those things are honored anymore because the world has changed. As Swamiji said, if you just wandered around the streets without any money, you would be arrested pretty fast. And the whole organization of these different geographical separations, now that the world is so unified by communications and um, travel and so on, just... And so many, many of the rules are honored in the breach... And it's just not happening the way it should happen. So he felt deeply inspired. He's been thinking about it for years. But he decided now is the time that he wanted to reform this order and start a new chapter. He felt, he's he recently spoke of the fact that he believes that Yogananda himself was Adi Shankaracharya. So it gives him an even greater right to sort of step in and continue his guru's work. First thing Swami decided is that he would like to change the color from orange to blue. Um, The color orange is meant to signify flames, and it's the burning up of all your attachments. Swamiji feels that now with the dawning of Dwapara, instead of focusing so much on what you're giving up, we should focus on where we're going. And blue is the color of the spiritual eye, blue is the color of the infinite Spirit, blue is, well, Krishna is blue because it represents infinity and represents the spiritual eye. So, blue is about embracing. Swamiji also said recently he felt orange is an imposing kind of color and blue is a more receptive color. So, he made that decision that he wanted. He had, and he's talked in other places, and I don't need to speak of all of it. He's now writing a book um, about renunciation, incorporating the book he's written called Sadhu Beware into that book. And when that book is done, then he'll really launch this order. But in the course of conversation, interestingly, as soon as he had the ideas, and we, there was a small group of us in the CC at that time, and he called us together, half dozen or a dozen of us, and started talking about it. He immediately started talking about what, the, uh, what these new Swamis would wear. In addition to being, being blue, um, he wanted there to be a characteristic robe. And he had certain ideas at that time which are gradually being modified, which is what I'm going to explain here. This is all by way of introduction. What the Swamis were going to wear. And he also talked about, you know, one of the uh, changing conditions would be that um, it would be possible for couples necessarily having to renounce couples as primary responsibility. Um, so it began to involve a lot of us. You know, we, we were all sort of looking at this new order as being part of our reality. Plus there's the brahmachari stage, the novice stage and the final vow stage. And immediately he started talking about what we would wear. And it, it was it was a little odd sort of going so quickly to the costume. But uh, as, I, as, as I began to watch its effect on me and on others, I realized the idea of donning a monastic habit is a great deal of what makes gives it a reality. If any of us had been initiated into sannyas in the Swami order as it now is, and and put on an orange robe, that would be a very significant part of what we would do and how we would do it. So the clothes were not really such a non-sequitur. So then then Swamiji just started thinking about how he wanted it to be, and he declared that he wanted it to be a unisex outfit, that the men and women would wear the same thing, that it would be a loose-fitting robe that would go on over your head. I mean, I'm not quite sure why, but I think he didn't want buttons, something that just drops down, that it would be, he said first, now it's a little shorter, mid-calf, and then you'd have loose pants underneath it. So you'd have sort of both a dress and a pair of pants, and men and women would wear the same. This is essentially, I'm dressed virtually like this right now. Um, this is an Indian style, and the men also wear long kurtas and pajamas. But of course, we do not we don't want it to just look like we all just went to India and got new clothes. It needs to have something recognizable. So after some thought, Swamiji thought that he would, he thought, had the inspiration that we would put a cowl on it. You know, cowl is like a hood. And the, the traditional monastic robes in the, in the Western system have the cowl and you pull the cowl forward and it essentially gives you a private universe. You can cut the world off when you're meditating or really wish to be isolated. You just pull this cowl. And if you're always wearing it, then it gives the costume a distinctively monastic look. Of course, hoodies are extremely popular and they have a totally different impression now. But we're, this is not a hoodie, this is a cow. Because I happen to be sitting there and because over the years I have sewn a number of Swami's garments, uh, especially before there were better seamstresses than me and before he lived in India. But over the years I've used my scissors and what I learned as a child about how to sew. So he started talking to me about this and then asked me to help him make this, which is great fun for me because I like to sew and I like clothes and I also was extremely, had a personal interest in the thing not looking like a gunny sack when it was finished because I knew that if people are going to have to wear this in uh, Western countries, it needs to be attractive because if it just looks tacky, it's not going to really work and I was very concerned about the whole thing. So from that time, months ago, it's been in my mind. And in, um, in our personal counting, it's called the Blue Project. So the Blue Project has been there for a long time, and I've been chipping away at the Blue Project for a long while, and finally have set aside some of the last few weeks to really work on it. I, I dived in and made a prototype, and then for a while Swamiji wanted to wear it in Los Angeles when he goes down to this um, next week. Um, I agreed that I could make it, get it ready for him in time. But uh, I personally didn't really think it was a good idea. I thought that people are coming there to this big event in Los Angeles because they want to hear about Master, so Swami should look like Master. (laughs) He should not look different from Master. He He should continue that tradition, which is how it's all ended up. But because we were trying to get it ready in time for L.A., I was just pushing like crazy. Swamiji has this beautiful dark indigo blue shirt and when I asked him what color blue he wanted it to be, he, we looked at all the shirts in his closet and he really wanted this indigo shirt. You've seen him, photographs of him and walking around, he often wears that it's a deep purple blue, it's a really gorgeous shirt. Um, so we decided that was the color, indigo. So I worked like crazy with this man here and I you know, worked hours and hours and got the thing made because... He wouldn't dye it until it was made. I borrowed Swami's shirts. I rushed down there. The day after I deliver it and after the white silk is dipped into the indigo and it's done, we get an email from Keshava in India whom I have been consulting about various fashion aspects. How long are men's kurtas? There was all these different things. To, you know, formal kurtas, short kurtas. So he consults a, a fashion maven gentleman named Chaitanya who hears that Swami's making his his uh, shirt indigo. And so he writes back that uh, Ayurvedically indigo is the color of shudras. Shudras are the lowest class <laughs> and that only only manual laborers wear indigo and that it's absolutely out of the question. <laughs> so I get this email from Kesheva after I've already taken it to the dyer anyway, but I just dismiss it because I have absolutely zero patience with, with traditions. I, I mean really irritates me when people tell me you can't do this because of that. So I just ignored it. Swamiji, however, did not ignore it. But just to make it more fun, Swamiji sends me an email, and the email says, Dear Asha, there's a single exclamation point, says, Love Swami. Then attached at the bottom is a little note from another person in the community whose name begins with a K, just thanking Swami for some little thing that happened. And I just thought, gee, I wonder why he's sending that to me, why is it? So then a few hours later he calls and he said, did you get the note from Keshav about the indigo? And I realized that he pushed the wrong button and sent me the wrong email. But I had already gotten it from Keshav. But I had ignored it, but Swami didn't. So by the time I get all the way up there, which I drove all the way up on Friday, all the way up and back on Friday, to take him, this beautiful indigo thing that I had made, this long thing with this beautiful cowl and all of this, um, only to find, fortunately... It was really nishkam karma, totally nishkam karma. I just, I'd just, i sewed for hours and hours just thinking about Swamiji, thinking about renunciation, listening to beautiful tapes. And really, I really didn't care what happened to it. And I really didn't think he should wear it in Los Angeles anyway, so here it is. But when he tells me we can't use it because it's indigo, and there's a tradition in India that the color of the spiritual eye belongs to manual laborers, I became very irritated. <laughs> Swami so, well, actually said, easy girl, easy, easy. <laughs> he said, it's not the robes, sir. it's stupid traditions. That's what really irritates me. Okay, so, that's the, so then, Jyotish and Davy go up to their house. They bring back armloads of blue. We choose another shade of blue. And we chose a much nicer shade of blue because the indigo was very dark anyway. It was a little heavy. My concern was if he wore it for that big event in Los Angeles that under the lights it would go black. You know, because it's, it's even, well, it's, it's the deepest... Shade of blue that you see up there's really beautiful in the daylight at night, it gets quite dark. So, so now I come home, and I'm not sure because he's not going to wear this whether I'm still you know doing this because Swami's going to go back to India, and in India, you just you know, tailors are everywhere, and you can just say, Try, this, try that. I mean, I'm slaving away like hour after hour because I'm really just a talented home seamstress, I'm not a tailor, I'm, I'm so it's really. As I wrote to everyone, I'm just a little beyond my skill level in this. You know, it's not, I'm not really capable of doing this, but I'm doing it. But he gives me the blue as if I'm going to make another blue one. So I say, sure, why not? You know, the blue project is already well into the red, so we'll just go on with this. (laughs) So I go out, get more fabric, get all started. And uh, fortunately, the man who does the dyeing is out of town this week, so there was no chance of my having to get it done before Los Angeles. So this is what I've been doing, and there's real reason behind this whole story, and I didn't realize it would take me so long to tell you. But the entire time I have been working on this, I've had a picture of that thing in my mind. From the very start, I've always had it in my mind. From the first time when we were back in the Sisi, and he started talking to me about this, I began to see it. I saw the many different forms of it. I practiced, you know, just... I, I put them on. I imagined what it would be like. The whole time I've been working on this pattern, I, had, I, I bought a pattern, I modified the pattern, I had to remodify the pattern. I just keep seeing all the pieces in my mind. Now, self-evidently, I'm a very verbal person. I never really even think of myself as a visual one, although I think I'm more than I realize. But I, I, have, I see that when I go to sleep at night. I see it when I wake up. I see it when I wake up in the middle of the night because I've really needed to get this thing done. And it occurred to me, well, that's what it's about. That's what we're talking about here. And and part of the reason that I was able to say, sure, I'll do this, even though, mamma mia, what was I thinking of? You know, at, at midnight when I'm sitting there trying to figure out the neckline, the devil's in the neckline, that's what I've been saying all along. But it's just like, because I could always see it. I was sure that I could get there. You see what I mean? If I hadn't been able to see it, I could never have said yes in the first place. And I started thinking about lots of different things that I've done in my life. And I'm just, I'm trying to really talk this out because this whole business of, you know, focus on clearly and manifest, it is something that I never quite got, but now I'm getting it. Um, Last summer, uh, not this summer, but the summer before, they decided they wanted to bring in all the old timers to cook the Indian banquet um, for Spiritual Renewal Week. And because Swamiji was there, it was going to be cooking for 500 people, Indian food for 500 people. And the banquets have been uneven in quality at Ananda Village in the last few years, and so they really wanted to make it very good. As soon as they called and asked me to help with it, I said, sure. Because I could see, I could just see that banquet. You know, partly because I've done them before, but also I just knew what it was. I wasn't even slightly dismayed at the fact that there were 500 people there because I could see it. Now, a friend of mine who is uh, very wealthy, self-made wealth, wealth in property primarily and a few other things, she made her own money and... um, uh, well, I might as well just, I mean, I can tell it exactly as it is. I mean, she's, she has sponsored me. She's decided that the, the way I can present these teachings could have a much bigger audience than it, it has. You know, she's, she's quite convinced that um, Asha Praver could become very well-known as, as the exponent of this teaching. I have this book about Swami Kriyananda. I really want to get that book forward. And so she's been totally convinced that we can make this work. And she's helped hire a publicist, and we've been working on this. Now, in the course of talking to her about this, because she's studied these things a little bit more, she says, well, it's very easy to manifest it. You just visualize where you're going, and then you do everything you need to get there. I mean, that that, that stuck in my mind so clearly. You just see where you're going, and then you just do what you need to get there. Because when she was talking about, you know, making me much better known, I sort of, and I admit even at this moment, and this is a little bit, I'm telling this story about myself because I've been learning a lot this week. I've had a really hard time seeing me there. I can't quite see me there. And, And she can't, doesn't quite know. She can see me there, but she doesn't know what the method is for getting me there. Whereas if she decides that she wants to, raise the money to buy some building or something like that, which she's done, or move her property around in various ways. She knows where she's going. She knows the steps in between. This one, she believes in the goal and she can see the goal, but she's not certain of the steps. I have, in some ways, a better idea of the steps, but I can't see the goal. Because for some reason or another, it's not quite within my grasp. And I I was very impressed by the fact that I can see the blue robe easily and just go forward without any... You know, I, I've been sewing for hours. I've not slept. I've just done everything that was needed and with perfect confidence that I would get there. But this other thing that I'm trying to go to, I don't have... What's the word he uses? Clarity. You have to see where you're going with complete clarity. Now, I began to realize that this was also very closely tied to the... the, the Discussion that Patrick and I had about whether you should aim high or low <laughs> and how far. But what I, what I was trying to say and what Swami's trying to say, he says, start small with something you can actually achieve. Because what he's actually saying is if you can't see it clearly, you're not going to be able to attain it. It's not that it's without, beyond your ability to do it, but if you can't see it clearly... It's going to be very hard for you to manifest. Now, that's just what I've been experiencing myself. I, I, I've just, now, when I started writing a book about Swamiji, I couldn't see that book. I knew that book was out there. I could say that I knew the book was out there, but I couldn't see that book. I, I struggled for three years in circles. And finally, that book turned into a book of stories. As soon as it turned into a book of stories, I could see it. And I knew then what to do, exactly how to get to that book. And then I just sat down and wrote it. People ask me, how long did it take you to write? I said, well, three years to figure out what I was going to write, and then one year to write it. And now I have in my mind, I'd like to write a second book. And I see the book already. You know, I know, partly because I've done it, I just know that I can just go forward and the the second book will be there. Other kinds of books that maybe I could write, they're a little vaguer out there. And I might be able, I, I will be able to find them, but not quite so easily. Now various things like, for example, when we started our community here, when we, when we were going to make the community, I didn't have really clear pictures about money or where the land was going to be, but the concept of community was crystal clear. And the certainty that we could both manifest it and that everyone would love it. And I recall we had this uh, meeting. It was a, a, we, well, we were trying to figure out how to bring the energy together. Rick was there, and I don't know if anybody else in the room was there. Is anyone else there? Lee, were you there? Yeah, you must have been there. You might not have remembered it as vividly because you weren't as much of the backstage story as Rick was. But we had all these people in a circle. Maybe John, I don't know. Were you there, John? No. We had all these people in a circle. And there were a few of us who were certain that having a community was a really good idea. We were very surprised when we came to this area that we thought everyone would really want to have a community. And Almost no one wanted to have a community. The only people who wanted to have a community were people who had moved from Ananda Village here and were trying to recreate what we'd already had. Almost everyone was extremely protective of whatever little tiny personal space they had carved out and felt very threatened by anything that was going to take that little personal space away from them. People were, and I would go visit people in their personal spaces and with all due respect, it was nothing to defend. <laughs> Almost without exception. But people, it was theirs, and they had it. Everybody disliked their job. They all wanted us to start businesses in which they would get high-paying jobs with lots of benefits. That what they were all for. Everyone was willing to go for that. Nobody was willing to go for low-paying jobs, but they were all willing to go for high-paying jobs, and very few wanted community. But, But we knew community was what people really needed. And so there was just this absolutely clear picture in our minds of what it would be like to have a community. Nancy Kendall saw the property santoshi she, she she knew property she's a realtor so she started working on property and uh, the rest of us started working on getting people unstuck but we had this meeting sitting around in this big circle and everybody had all these ideas about how we were going to organize this and what they really wanted us to do two things they wanted us to do they wanted everybody to sign up who planned to move in And I knew almost nobody planned to move in because they were all too nervous to move in. The only people who were going to move in was the handful of people who were already living in the ashram house. So that was a bad idea. Then the other idea that people had was, why don't we all talk about what we're afraid of? Whoa, there's a good one. You know, let's all put our fears on the table and then we can maybe overcome them. And there was this point where, you know, we just knew... Because we could see the community. We knew it was going to happen. And we just knew that we just needed to go there and they would come with us. And it wasn't the people who couldn't see it who were going to build it. Do you see what I mean? They couldn't see it. They couldn't visualize it. They couldn't feel it. And so they're all trying to sort of do something, but it was all totally counterproductive. And in fact, we're sitting in this circle and I'm doing my best to keep it from going where it shouldn't. And then... We're having a very positive conversation. Then one person talks about what they're afraid of. Then the next person talks a little more about what they're afraid of. And by the time the third person was really going about all the potential disasters that this community would cause, you could just feel the magnetism for success in the room going... Just like that. Just like somebody punctured a balloon and it was just leaking out through the floor. This man who's really never forgiven me, who who doesn't come anymore... (laughs) He was in the middle of a sentence, and I said, "Ah, it's lunchtime, just like that. I just totally, like, totally cut him off. I decided it just didn't make any difference. This was an emergency. You know, the, the success magnetism of our project was being destroyed by people who couldn't see it. You see what I mean? And so by the time, pardon me? And none of them moved in anyway. They were just there to ruin it. Indirectly, they didn't mean to. But, well, maybe they did, but that's beside the point. But then during lunch, you know, a few of us, Rick and a few of us got together, and we, you know, what are we going to do? And when we came back, we had no more open mic, no more open discussion. <laughs> we had, you know, things on the wall, and we did very specific. And basically, we started getting people to visualize the energy. We didn't, we didn't, we weren't specific. We just talked about energy, you know, so, so people could begin to feel it. And of course, those of us who could see it, brought it to fruition. And I wasn't the only one but there was a handful. We brought it to fruition and then it went, once it was there everybody could see it and then they moved in. you know. And it's been a, a great success ever since. Now, with Swamiji, I recall being with him in, this has, happens we were in Houston, Texas, but it doesn't make any difference. He was, um, it, that was the time, it was very early in Ananda, let's see. It must have been in the late 70s. And uh, we were poor as dirt. We just had no money. I mean, collectively, we had no money. We still have no money, but as we say, we go bankrupt at a very high level. (laughs) I mean, there's still nothing, there's still no margin, but there's a whole lot of stuff that has been manifested. But then we're really, you know, we were really at the dirt level. I went on one of my friends, this is not so true anymore, but 20 years ago when we were traveling in India with our travel guide, Sanjay, was very Western, we'd sort of talk about, you know, maybe you would like to live in America. Oh, he said, it's not fun in America. He said, in India, he said, you're always just this far off the ground and any little thing sends you down. So it's very exciting, he said, to be a traveler in Europe. <laughs> so, you know, so we lived in Ananda, we were about that far off the ground, you know, just anything could just wipe us out. Um, but uh, Swamiji has always been trying to teach us how to manifest right from the start, so we were trying to understand prosperity. That's what I was trying to say. But the, he hadn't written this course yet. He hadn't written the book Money Magnetism. It was just a whole different game. So people started looking for prosperity lessons. And they started finding, you know, all the other things that are out there that don't come from this teaching that are a little more... They're not, they're not um, false, but they're not, they're not as... Uh, all-inclusive. They don't, they don't include as many levels of reality. I was the only way I can think to say it. And so I was out there with Swami in Houston, and we were, I was just traveling alone with him, I think. Uh, Krishnadas was joining us, although that was later. Um, and I said, Swamiji, it certainly seems to me um, that we would have prosperity teaching within our own Path, you know, we don't really have to go somewhere else. This is slightly off the point. I realize. His answer to that was the secret of prosperity is creativity. That was what he said. He said it's just having the understanding that if this doesn't work, I'll try the next thing. He didn't finish the lesson, and I realize now, because I've been working on on something that makes it very simple, is a very teachable. I'm making this blue shirt thing, and. Every time it doesn't work, I just take it apart and do it again. And I just keep taking it apart and doing it over until I find what works. And I, I'm not going to quit because I can see it. I know it's some, one of these things will work. I just keep shifting it and shifting it until gradually it's coming into focus one way or another. Now, but in that same conversation, and this was the real point, Swamiji says, every time I say that we're going to have 200 people at Spiritual Renewal Week, he says, everybody says, yeah, Sure. And he says, so any hope of actually having 200 people is completely undermined. But if I didn't say we, we were going to have 200 guests, he said, we wouldn't even have the 25 that we have. <laughs> but I've always that's always vividly stayed in my mind. Because every time he would say that, then everybody couldn't, no one could see it. We could just see what we already knew, or less than we already knew, and all of that carping spirit that just takes everything down. We just come in. Swami could see it. And, and he essentially said, you know, the only reason we don't have 200 people, uh, I can't now think exactly what his words were, but in essence, it's because nobody believes it but me. Every time he puts out, puts out a book, he, it's going to be a bestseller. This is the one that's really going to put anand on the map. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. Even as he says it, everybody, you can hear their minds saying, oh, come on, we've heard that before. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When we were, now, this is all the subtlety of it. When we were having the last phase of the lawsuit that was the character assassination lawsuit as opposed to the intellectual property lawsuit, SRF's property lawsuit was about whether they owned Yogananda's name. And then the lawsuit that came in the middle was whether or not we were an abusive cult and whether all the men in our community abuse all the women. Ludicrous as it sounds, we actually were engaged in that project for about four years. It was so ludicrous that we kind of got blindsided because we didn't know what could happen. So we went through this trial here in Redwood City, in which we were ultimately judged to be an egregious cult, um, which has given me very little faith in the um, American justice system. But that because it happened in Redwood City, all of the players stayed at our house for weeks at a time in the community. And when we were getting up every day and going into this courtroom where the judge was working as a prosecuting attorney, he was telling the prosecuting attorneys, the plaintiff's side against us, he was telling them what papers to file and what motions he would grant and which ones he wouldn't, and he was, everything, everything was going against us, everything. Swamiji said... The law of averages says that you will win some and lose some. So when you lose everything, you know that Divine Mother is behind it. That's how he put it. <laughs> because otherwise, a few things would go in your favor, and nothing in that lawsuit went in our favor, just beyond imagination of expectancy, including the judge, just to just give you a, 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 an idea of the flavor. He issued a sanction that we were forbidden to present any defense to the main charges in the case. How's that? And the jury was not told that we were not allowed to present a defense. We just simply didn't present a defense. We couldn't cross-examine witnesses, and we couldn't present any counter-evidence. So the ju- jury just sat there and watched us sit there while all these accusations were made, and we did nothing. This is, you know, juries don't know most of what goes on. But that's another issue. But that's just telling you like what the, how bizarre the story was. And we didn't appeal because we were bankrupt by the time it was over. Okay, so... Every morning we'd get up and we'd all gather at breakfast at this long table that we had in our apartment there. We were living in the apartment still. And we'd all gather for breakfast, like 10 or 12 of us, Jyotish, Devi, Durga, Vadura, a few, um, Sheila, a few others. We're all there. We'd have breakfast together. And Swami would say, I think things are really turning around for us. I think juror number four looked really more sympathetic. Didn't you think so? I think perhaps even the judge is beginning to see what's going on here. And all around the table, we'd say, no, 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 no. No chance, no chance. Another terrible day. We did that every day. And the last day, it was the last day when I said, I thought to myself, you know, what kind of a moron are you, Asha? The poor man is doing everything he can to generate the tiniest bit of positive magnetic energy and see something other than disaster and we're just absolutely making absolutely sure that it it never even gets an inch off the ground. You know, we were so steeped. Now Swamiji, later I spoke to him about this because I I wanted to check my perception on that one. I mean, part of what we were... (laughs) What we are trying to do was help Swami to be more realistic. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh God, I'm so embarrassed in retrospect. But those were strange days. And he said, I said to him, you know, it's like it's a, it's a fine line, isn't it, between just um, dynamic affirmation and mere wishful thinking. And he said, yes, it is a fine line. He said, and you have to be very careful. You see, he had the magnetism. To, to push against the facts. Do you know what I mean? He was perfectly conscious of the facts. His positive affirmation was not based on either an inability or a fear of perceiving conditions as they were. He, he saw conditions exactly as they were, probably better than any of the rest of us. I think he could read the minds of the people in there. But then his affirmation was for a reality beyond it which is that he could see the positive outcome from whatever we were going through at that time. And he was just trying to get us into a positive outcome point of view instead of a lower and lower and lower, um, downer and downer kind of energy. Do you understand what I mean? Now this is all about what it takes to manifest. You know, if you'd asked Swamiji factually what was going on, he knew exactly what was going on, but he he just refused to allow his world to be defined by this temporary defeat. He knew Ananda would go on, and he just wanted us to just enter that courtroom with a positive flow, even if every day it got smashed, to hold that image, to be able to see that no matter what is coming to us. Now that's moving a little bit out of the visualization. That's into the positive energy side of it but it's just having the creativity. We were losing our creativity by our negativity. We were losing our enthusiasm. We were losing our light because we were just sort of holding on. Now, of course, everybody recovered and we we laughed a lot. We still did fine. I don't want to say that we were so terrible, but we, we missed that one. We missed that one in a big way and I think a lot of us missed that one in a big way. Now, manifesting requires that you have constant creativity and you never give up. Now, In several different exercises in this lesson and other lessons, Swamiji has told us, visualize what it is that you want to do clearly at the spiritual eye. Rotate energy around that. Feel the response of God in your heart. Project energy toward, give energy toward where you're going. Isn't that what he says in here? When I read that in there, I realized just this little blue robe but I'm going to come back to that for just a moment. That's exactly what I've been doing. I've, I've sort of seen that thing out in the, the causal realm and I've just been putting out this energy to bring it down. I've been working very hard but I've been working with the image of it as much as I've been working with any other aspect of it. And and most of the time when I cook, I also do that. Now, the reason I mention these two things because here's what's significant about it. Cooking and sewing. These are not issues in which I personally have much ego involvement. Even though I'm making this thing for Swami, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I sort of feel like the whole robe is really going to be defined after they get to India. I feel even at this point, I'm just doing the necessary tapasya in order to bring this thing into fruition. Whether my garments will ever be used or not doesn't matter. So therefore, my consciousness is not hampered. And cooking, which is the first thing that I learn to do intuitively, which Swamiji essentially awoke intuition in me over a three-day weekend. I told you, some of you, the story, but I'll tell it again because it's important. I was the the cook for the meditation retreat, which was where most of the community lived at that point. People did not have kitchens of their own, and nor did they receive enough money to buy food. Everybody had to eat out of that kitchen. Uh, Three meals a day, six days a week, Um, It was about 40 people. It was the founding members of Ananda. This is 1971, 72, 73. I was in charge of the kitchen. I was nearly the sole cook. I was a terrible cook. I mean, a really bad cook. I was very interested in nutrition. I was into health foods. I was a fanatic. I was a food fanatic, which does not make a good cook. So I think that happened when I really wanted to use the local crops And at the farm then, we were growing kale and Jerusalem artichokes, and we we had abundant crops of Jerusalem artichokes for a number of years, except everybody in the community hated them, and they actually stopped growing. I mean, they were just, they just grew like mad, and then the deva must have just had her feelings hurt, and she went away, and they stopped growing. But I served them, I served kale and Jerusalem artichokes both, at least once, and sometimes twice every day. Now... If, if you're a food fanatic like me, you can get away with that. If you're not, you try to do something about it. So they basically went to Swamiji, I believe, and said, oh, please, sir, save us. So he said, first he, he very tentatively said something about, you know, that maybe my cooking wasn't quite as delicious as it might be. By that point, I wanted to change, I just didn't know how. And when, I, when he saw that I was receptive, which I was very receptive, I was just helpless, he said, well, I'll teach you to cook. And that weekend this uh, Swami, Nirmalananda was his name at that time, was coming to visit Swamiji, he was an old friend of his. Swami Nirmalananda was a great big man, big round man who self-evidently liked to eat. And uh, Satya, who's a, a very elderly man now who's there, Satya, Swami Nirmalananda, me, and Seva, and uh, Nirm- Nirmalananda was staying with Satya, but he came over to Swamiji's for three meals a day for two and a half days. And Swami just had me in the kitchen with him. Swami did all the, prepared all the food, and um, and I was with him. I th- I had a notebook and a pencil. You know, I was all set to do this, and it became quickly impossible to write anything down. Swami was just you know making food like this, and I'm trying to be real cerebral about this, and he- it was hopeless. But I just gave up and just cooked with him, helped him. I mean, he cooked, and I handed him knives and washed dishes and cut apples and things like that. The last meal, finally, Seva said, oh, we're going to have a fruit salad. And Seva said, well, I'll I'll fix the food. And so I said, that would be nice. No, no, he said, I'm teaching Asha to cook. And he got up, and he had me come in the kitchen, and we cut up the fruit. The next day, I woke up, and I knew how to cook. I have no idea how, but I did. (laughs) So, in some subtle way that I really have no idea how, he, he awoke my intuition. And ever since then, I've just been able to be wherever I am in a kitchen and look around and what's in the kitchen and almost always make something fairly tasty out of it. And I, you know, I use recipes, but not very much. I just somehow know, and I did not know before. Now, one of the reasons he was able to do that for me is because I don't care. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that I'm not trying to be a cook. And one of the reasons, and I learned, I was able to learn about doing things intuitively through cooking because I didn't have an ego involvement in it. I was not raised in such a way that cooking was ever important. You know, intellectual things were important, various other things were important, but cooking was so incidental that I could just be very free in the energy. Now, these are all very instructive parts of the lesson. When Swami talks in here about coming back to lesson number three, Swami talks about being a Greek and how almost always when we're trying to absorb knowledge, part of us is pushing us away. This is very difficult. I'm not really a Greek. This is not really something I need to understand. He just decided he was a Greek. And Greek language then therefore made perfect sense to him. When he decides he wants to write music, he just feels that there's a melody there that will express exactly what that place felt to him. And then he says, and I never enter personally into the mood of the music. It's not about his need to create. It's not about him reliving his own experiences. It's just the clear, a clear something that he can see and then he moves toward it. Now, coming back around, which I didn't quite finish with, this idea of how high should you aim, What well, the reason Swamiji encouraged us to start with things that you know you can obtain is so that we can learn the method. And I was beginning to realize that it's extremely important and, and that, that being able to visualize it and it's not just, you don't visualize, in fact, Swami specifically says, don't visualize it down to the make and model number, you know, in the, in the cardboard box. What you're visualizing is, you're visualizing the essence of what you're trying to create. You're, you're visualizing the energy of what you're trying to create. You're visualizing the successful completion of whatever it is that you're trying to create. And if we choose and practice with even very small things, even something so small as I'm going to go to Whole Foods, I'm going to find three ripe peaches, I'm going to bring those ripe peaches home and I'm going to make myself a beautiful bowl of peaches and cottage cheese. I mean, now that's partly just, there's nothing involved in doing that, but even the, having the habit of picturing in your mind where you're going and then going to it with willpower. Instead of just moving through life in this kind of vague or slightly confused manner. Because that becomes habitual. And then we suddenly decide, oh I need income, I need a house, I need a life partner, I need a new car. And then we have never practiced being very focused and precise and clear about our intentions. We've never set goals and moved toward them with the same techniques. I mean, I had to actually ask myself about the things that I would like to see manifest, but I I don't know how to manifest. How come I can only manifest large meals and blue um, outfits? You know, I'd like to use my energy a little bit more than that. But then I really started thinking this through. And it's interesting. It's like, and these are all the points that are in the lessons. He says, be sure that you feel guided, that this is really the thing that you're supposed to manifest. He has that in there. When we were trying to build this school building back here, which we started trying to build just before we went through this that 12-year period of lawsuits. And all the money that was anywhere at Ananda had to be directed toward this $13 million worth of legal costs, of which we're still paying off $2.5 and, and so the possibility of building that building just had to be put on hold. But we had progressed to the point where we had gotten a permit to tear down this wreck of a house that was on the land where that building was. And then all the years of the lawsuit were there and somehow we managed to put the whole thing on hold. But the lawsuit was just over and we were not feeling particularly flushed or maybe this was a few years ago. My timing of these things is confused. But we suddenly were at the point where if we did not get going and complete that building... We would lose permission to tear down that house because it was, even though it was a piece of cheese, an historic building, and we had gotten an exception to be able to tear it down. And if we didn't tear it down, we were going to have to preserve it forever. (laughs) I mean, it was a rat-infested, disintegrating old piece of cheese, but it didn't matter. It was old. So we had to go forward. Now, in that moment, I just knew that we could. I don't know how I knew, but I just knew that we could. And I could just see, I could see the process of us moving forward. And it was partly that we had to, but it was also like I knew we could do it. And we made a deal with Divine Mother. Um, You don't have to give us all the money at once. We just don't want to ever stop because we've run out of money. And it took us about three years, I think, to, to, to put it up. And we never had to stop because we'd run out of money. We did run out of money. But whenever we ran out of money, something else would slow the project down. So just before we had to stop, oh, the, per, uh, the inspectors would do this. Or they, somebody would have trouble with that. And we just were able to move right through it. But it was always there. Just no question. I just knew it was there. And then, but other things that we try to do, you know, it's like some things are not quite right. That's the only way I can think about it. It just comes and it's a good idea and it would be nice if we could do it. But it's just, at least speaking for myself, maybe it's not mine to do, but it doesn't feel ripe. And it's not even a question of not being able to see it. It's just not timely. It's not yet trying to happen. And so these are all the, the points that Swami's saying about you have to actually be able to see it, which means somewhere or another, it has to connect with you. And if you can't see the, thing, the big things you really want, practice seeing the little things that you can manifest. And this is exactly what he says in the lesson, and this is exactly why he says it. You know, aim low is how I put it. But what I actually meant was manifest what you feel confident you can manifest. You know, this, this blue outfit that I've been working on, I've had to work really, really hard. I mean, my hand hurt from doing so much sewing. Just like, I mean, I'm I'm like rubbing my hand because I've just done so much sewing. I've stayed awake many nights. I mean, and we've spent lots of money. I mean, it's been huge. It's not been easy. It's taken every ounce of my energy to do it. But I've always felt it was within my grasp. When we did that 500-person meal, it was like I knew we could do it. Man, we were tired when we finished that. We were so tired, but we did it. When we did this building, I knew we could do it. But we had to work really hard. But we could always see it. So whatever it is, and whatever you do, and this this is like a revolution. I'm so excited because I'm understanding this. I'm realizing how often I just drift. I don't actually, whatever my intention is, however small, clearly focus on it and go forward and manifest it. Even if you think it's easy to manifest, practice, practice seeing it going forward making it happen. And then make them bigger and bigger until you develop the skill. Because I think to myself, well, I I used to not be able to cook. Somewhere over the course of these years, I learned to cook those bigger and bigger meals. I used to not be able to sew. I still can't sing very well. But other people can just sing. They can just see themselves singing. And I can imagine myself singing, but I can't see myself singing. And partly because I'm not willing to do the work. You know, it's just not in me to do that work so you have to match all of those elements together and you have to practice when it's easier if we just start practicing on the giant things we don't have the underlying skill now this brings me to the last part of this lesson which i think if we can do it i think i'll just finish it is it okay if we just go on knowledge inspiration energy Okay, These are the three elements that are required in order to achieve anything. Do I have the right ones? Knowledge, inspiration, energy. And um, we, can't, we can't just discount knowledge. Yes, knowledge, intuition, and energy. Or in, Sometimes he says inspiration. Well, it's right there on the front. Knowledge, inspiration, energy. We can't discount any of those three. I had a very interesting experience many years ago when I very first started teaching. Like 1981 this would have been. When um, one of the first lecture tours that I took, up we, uh, a group of us went, well, this must have been the second one, but we went up um, up to, through the Northwest. The first one, Sahadev, and four other singers and I went together. That was a great trip. Fantastic. But that was the first one. They were, we had four singers. We got in the car together. We're sitting at this rest stop. I said, how many songs do you know? They realized they, they knew... Three songs. Four songs? It wasn't very many songs. I said, you, are, you all are no more prepared for this tour than I am. You know, it was like a... But we just went forward and had a really happy time anyway. But this, so this was a, a subsequent tip because Shivani was with me. Shivani and I made this six-week lecture tour, planned it out, and she would teach some of the classes and I would teach others. Shivani, who has for 20 years been one of the main teachers in a CC. Italy, even though she's American, she's Italian now. Um, she's, she was really interested in master's uh, uh, healing techniques, healing methods. I was less interested in them and also because Shivani was so interested in them, it's just like it was kind of her field and we were, we were partners in a great deal of what we did. So we set up this whole lecture tour in which there were a lot of classes in healing because Shivani was going to be on this trip. But about a week into it, Shavani's husband, who was a contractor, was doing some big project in Southern California and, I don't know, it began to come apart at the seams. And she was, to a certain extent, his business partner and she realized she had to go and help him with whatever was going on. So she just bailed out of the trip. You know, just drove back from Seattle or flew back to Southern California and I was there. Um, and I had all this classes in healing that I had to teach. And she left me all her notes and all this stuff, but... I didn't have time, at least not for the first lectures, to really be ready. Um, Even from the beginning, I've always been an intuitive speaker. I just can, I sort of just move with whatever's happening. And then, especially, I was sort of more um, consciously doing that. Now it's so many years later, it's not so much at the top of my mind. But I remember in Longview, Florida, uh, Longview, Washington, the first class I taught in healing. And it was extremely interesting to me because it was an absolute demonstration of the balance between intuition and knowledge. Now Swamiji says he can just focus his mind and he'll he'll get actual information. You know, he learns astrology by focusing. He learns Greek by focusing. Um, Suffice to say, I'm not on that level. So I would start talking about healing and I would feel in the room that a certain direction I was going, that there was, there was energy in the room drawing me further into that direction. But I would hit the end of my knowledge. And I would just like sort of have this internal conversation, which is, sorry, can't go there. You know, I just don't know any more than that. So I'd sort of go here, and then until I'd hit the end of my knowledge, and no matter how the room was pulling me, I didn't have the information, or I didn't have the confidence. I don't know which one it was, to go on. And I just had to teach within the bounds of inspiration, but only to the limit of how much knowledge I have. I find that completely true when I try to sing. I feel like a great singer, but I hit the limit of my range, you know? And even though I have all this inspiration, I don't have the knowledge. I don't know what to do with my voice, right? And intuition won't take me anywhere. I just, I don't know what to do with my voice. I don't know how to place it properly. Now, we have a tendency, because we have so much regard for intuition, to not have enough respect for knowledge. Recently, Swami Kriyananda was, was complimenting Sean Mishore, who's now in charge of our Los Angeles community. And he's putting on this event that many of us are going to this weekend. It's a free event at the Ford Amphitheater. He's, um, seats are reserved. He has 1,600 reservations for that event, which is more than you know anybody... He's oversold the venue by quite a few hundred, knowing that since the tickets are free, people won't come, but I think it's going to be, every seat's going to be gone. He's a very competent man. But Swamiji said, when Sean was in charge of the vitamin department, well, you think, well, this is, you know, like Swami Kriyananda's event, and this is special. But he said, when Sean was in charge of the vitamin department at, good, at our health food store in Nevada City, he knew more about vitamins than anybody When he was here at East West and he was in charge of events, he knew every author in the country and who published them. Um, He just like, when he gets into a subject, he gathers all the knowledge that he can gather also. You know, Swami was complimenting on him. I think by contrast, when Swami put me in charge of the publishing company, which was one of the more humorous moments in Ananda's history, um, you know, pathetically humorous, It never occurred to me to gather knowledge. (laughs) I'm just so embarrassed to say that. It just never occurred to me. You know, I just somehow thought I could just sail along on God knows what. But I just, it never occurred to me to learn anything. And I don't know how I imagined that I could run the business without knowing anything. But I was just going to go on, what, energy and inspiration? Which is great. I've got those things in abundance. But I didn't know anything. But then Swamiji also talks here, and it's so interesting. This is the way he summarizes this. By definition, knowledge is about the past. Because by the time it's known, it's not in the present anymore. And even though we have to have a grounding in all of that, true inspiration comes from asking, but what's trying to happen now? What are the, And especially talking about business, what are the real needs of the present moment? Isn't that just, uh, what are the real needs of the present moment? And then this is where he talks about the unity, feeling this unity with other people's consciousness. Because ultimately we're talking about business and about selling and buying and working with other people. What are the, we, we extend our consciousness out and sort of like everything can be known to us. I am a part of all truth and all truth is a part of me. I'm not separate from these realities. If I'm engaged in this work or I desire to be engaged in this work, we we expand our sense of unity and therefore we can reach out into the present consciousness of the present moment. And we have all this understanding of what people have known up until now and that's our sort of, the tapasya that we've done, the homework that gives us grounding in this. But right in this present moment, what's trying to happen? What can I see? And then when we get it clearly, clarity 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 and the reason we don't have clarity a great deal of the time is we just don't work hard enough in order to have it you, know, you have to work really hard in order to get things really clear you know that that that's the that's the biggest stumbling block and why do we get confused we get nervous you know, we get nervous about what's going on. We worry about ourselves. We're afraid that we're going to fail. We we start, instead of actually doing work, we start projecting our success and we start thinking about how everybody's going to like us when we succeed and how great it's going to be. And then, you know, I'm going to have all this money and free time and just, won't that be wonderful? But we stop thinking about, with clarity, about the actual task at hand. And we, we also stop thinking about the steps. Many times people get the vision out here but they don't understand that that distance has to be covered. That's what my friend in Los Angeles was saying to me. You see where you're going, and then you take the steps between you and it. See, that's the point in between. Swamiji writes about that in his own autobiography. He wanted to be a great writer, and he sort of declared himself a great writer, but he wasn't writing, he realized. And he also didn't have any wisdom to write about. So he could see what he was going to be, But he didn't have any way to take the steps. So he had to back way up and then go find that wisdom which led him to get on the spiritual path. And then once he really had something to teach, then he went back to that original, you know, youthful image of himself as a writer. But now he had the steps. He'd done the steps in between. If we're not able to bring into fruition what it is that we're visualizing, Maybe we need to adjust our visualization. Maybe we need to get more knowledge about what we're trying to create. Maybe we need to sense more clearly whether this is really mine to happen right now. You know, someone was asking me advice about something. I was talking to David and, you know, so-and-so was having difficulty. David, in his way, often just cuts right through. He says, well, that's not really his to do. No, it's not really his to do. It's something he imagines that he can do, but he doesn't he he can't see it himself, even though he's trying to see it. What he sees is the success, he doesn't see the thing itself. Do you understand what I mean? You have to actually do it. You can't just see the fruits. You have to see the the energy required to achieve it. And we have to practice, 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 being fully awake and moving through our lives with this clear image. And then this clear moving toward whatever those steps are. And practice on the things that are not hard for you. So that you get the feeling of the flow. Okay. Now. Does that make sense to you all? Is that interesting? Is that helpful? Do we have any questions now? Yes. George uh, George has a question. One of the things that sound difficult to me from what you're saying is uh, you want something. You want to manifest it. But how do you really not care about about it like like the sewing and the cooking right how could how do you really you know i i didn't finish a thought here which is i started to say but i can't sing exactly because i haven't yet done the work now when, when we find what the point is just hold on a second what is the point oh at a certain point you just have to start if i mean at at some point i obviously did the work required to be able to sew I mean, it's, it's childish. I, learned, I started learning when I was 10. By 13, I was already pretty good at it. I didn't learn to cook until my 20s, but I obviously had it in me. There's a lot of things that we can all do because at some point we learned how to do them. So if we find ourselves on the edge of something that we know we need to learn, but it's a little bigger than we are, then a, a, a few good things to do are to break it into bite-sized pieces. You know, visualize it step by step. Maybe the... Last point is too far away from us. Maybe the last point is that we have our own storefront and we're selling these certain products. But maybe the first thing we have to visualize is um, the sales calls that I'm going to make to get this going. And we see ourselves talking on the phone and we see that process going really well. And we don't even think about what's beyond it. Now, it's impossible to just tell yourself, be detached. It's impossible to say, it's even worse to say, I am detached. You know, so I, I find the best thing to do is to be extremely frank and honest about it. This scares me to death. Uh, or my ego is so invested in being successful on this. Or I, I can't help but just seeing myself standing on the stage receiving the award. Um, and I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to. Or I'm really scared that everybody's going to think this is foolish. Just don't make any pretense about what you actually feel. The more you just bring it out in the open and let it be part of the story, um, the less concern there is for it. And then you need to pray. You see, you need to say, oh, please, Divine Mother, don't let my attachment and fear screw this up. <laughs> you know, just like very straightforward. Even though my motives are not entirely pure and my consciousness is a little corrupt, you know, take what fragment of me is working properly and let's go on with this. Because then you gradually get over it. The way you get over these things is you just keep you just don't quit and that that is the one thing that i know the simple thing that i i have learned is you just make mistake after mistake after mistake you notice what you did wrong you pick yourself up the secret of prosperity is creativity and so that means if your attitude messes it up then you just start over again with a little attitude correction and because just because you're a little wrong doesn't mean you can't start but you should, therefore, start in areas... Don't take the whole thing all at once. If you know that you've got way too much going on with that one, then just cut it down until you... The way um, Sister Gyanamata says it about sp- the spiritual life is that you should, you should back up until you're... St- I mean, I, I'm crediting her. In some way, this came from her, but I don't remember exactly how she said it. You should back up until you're standing on firm ground. You know, if, if you, you can't just be affirming, you can't be saying all the time, you know, I have absolute faith that God will take care of me. If you don't have absolute faith, because if you're, if you're telling yourself that that's where you're at, that I have absolute faith, and you don't, the more you say it, the more nervous you get. So you have to keep backing up to the point where you can say, I believe that the divine power is omnipresent, and I have seen it work in my life. Okay? Okay? And and then you're standing on solid ground. I have seen the divine work in my life. I know that there have been times when God has taken care of me. So I hope that this time he will too. Right? But But you're never on shaky ground. You're always standing right where you are. And so then you behave accordingly. You don't risk everything. You don't make a public uh, display of everything because you're not on solid ground to declare whatever I try, God is going to support me. You just say, many times he hasn't failed me, right? (laughs) Do do you see what I mean? So that's what you say. I'm, I'm a little too attached to risk everything. I know that my nervousness and it's like there's also nothing more charming than people who are just frank about their faults and not worried about it. Isn't it the most... You know, people who can just say that. Just, there I am. And God likes it too. Because it's very, very real. There's a lot of strength in reality. And then you just discipline yourself as much as you can. And when you, the monkey gets out of the cage and makes a big mess, then you just kind of get its collar back on and pull it back into the cage. And then you just go forward again. (laughs) And trust me, it'll happen over and over again. And then what, what actually happens though is, and see, he writes this in here. If you're an employer, try to trust your own intuitions about things. Don't just listen to what other people say. If you're an employee, try to tune in intuitively to what your boss is trying to create and support them energetically. You know, practice in all of these different ways. Just using what's in you. And don't worry about the faults. Just keep trying. And, and what really happens, and he says it right in here, gradually you can begin to discern which feelings are valid and which are not. And how can you tell? Because the ones that work and then the other ones you begin to recognize are not the good ones. And invariably, when I look back on the many impressive disasters in my life, there was always a a telltale something or another. But you find out. Here's a story about Swamiji. He always tells us about how he got thrown out of SRF because he went forward and got the land in India and... Um, and then the board of directors didn't like it, and eventually he was expelled. He told that story for about 15 or 20 years, and then once he said, and since then he's always added this in, you know, when I started going after that land, I didn't have the usual feeling in my heart that this was really the right thing to do. (laughs) He said, but I thought I would see what, what, what happens if I went, because it was the only thing I could see to do, if I went forward without that feeling. But I thought later, my God, what courage. You know, just the courage, because he just, it well, he also it was the only thing he could think of to do at the time. But just that little thing, which is he could sense there was something not quite on track about this. But let's see what happens when we go forward like this. And then we'll know ever thereafter. Isn't that wonderful? The rest of us just hunker down in our beds for fear that the slightest thing might go wrong. You know, we can't really trust that life is going to come out okay. Really, don't be naive. But we can trust that if we act sincerely, God will always move us step by step through it. And, and God will take us to our next level of learning. And that you can always trust. Um, I think you can always trust it. That's my safe ground. Okay. okay, any other questions or thoughts? Okay, I have to go home and sew. <laughs> because I don't want to see this after Los Angeles. I want to have it done. (laughs) Okay, thank you all. God bless you. (laughs) I think we'll go on. How about lesson four for next week?